you know, some advice from Lacoli and shout out to Lacoli in Washington that he would always give as far as recitals and performances. He would say, when you're backstage right before you go out, find someone to tell a joke to, get some laughs out. So that way when you're walking out, it's not nerves you're feeling, but it's light. Lightness. What do you think about that advice? I think that's, I've always uh, treasured that advice. To tell you the joke or you tell somebody else the joke before you go out? Either, either way, just to, you know, get you laughing. I feel like if you tell a really corny joke backstage or before you press start, before you press record, <laughs> you know, okay. it just lets the jitters out. I know. That, I that's see what we that. a little bit of. Yeah. All right. Uh, for this week's Downbeat, Scott, we're going to Washington. We're going to Capitol Hill. Anthony Fauci is tired of y'all. He's done. Let's take a listen. This is him and Rand Paul. Animal virus, and you increase its yeah, transmissibility yeah. to humans. Right. You're saying that's not gain of function? Yeah, that is correct. And, and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. And, and you are implying that what we did was responsible for the deaths of individual. I totally resent and that. Have and if anybody and is lying been. here, Senator, it is you. It is really scary, Scott, to look at the news and statistics and see how many people are just not willing to take this shot. It is they, they are just not trying to take this shot. It's scary to me. Oh, you mean the vaccine? Yeah, the yeah. vaccine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you ever have any, I mean, be beyond where this is a, a, a semi-safe space. Did you ever feel any hesitancy when they were talking about the vaccine initially back, you know, maybe in oh, May of 2020? Well, we talked about it on here, you know, going, geez, this is really being developed very quickly. You know, this is causing all sorts of anxiety and questions. Yeah. But after listening to some news reports and learning that it's an SR virus, right? Sure, SR, I don't know. I don't like know. SR, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So... They have the building blocks of those already, you know, uh, like SARS, sure, and bird flus and all those sorts of things. So I, I didn't, I didn't even need all of that when when I got the email that said, "Hey, come get you a shot." I'm like, "All right, let's let's do it. Let's let's get all this stuff over with." But I with, was glad that there was plenty of people that took it before me. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. So and plenty after. You know, we need more people after to be taking it. Truth. I've, something I, I think about. I don't think Doctor. Dr. Fauci was signing up for this, to have it to yell at conservatives no, on Capitol Hill over some bullshit. No, he's a doctor. He's not <laughs> trying to take abuse. But he's doing what he has to do. Sometimes in your line of work, you have to stand up for the truth, and that requires getting a little loud, getting a little dramatic. It does. In all lines of work, and I think he's seeing that. I mean, we, uh, look, Good good day, everyone. As as we get started here with Triloquy talking about this downbeat, go get go get the vaccine. I mean, we'd spent a lot of time uh being locked up, being in quarantine. Triloquy played it safe. It was several weeks in a row where we were doing it remote and that yeah. breaks breaks down levels of the rapport and the feel and just the technology of things we can do. Yeah. Um so we we even played it safe. Probably one of the only times Triloquy has ever just played it safe, huh? <laughs> well, when the lockdowns were happening, you know, and we weren't supposed to be interacting with anybody except for whoever's checking out your groceries yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yeah, that that was the remote time. So there was what, six weeks of that? Six six or seven weeks of it. Something like that. Anyway. But as soon as they put up those signs that said unvaccinated you know, vaccinated people can come in without a mask, yeah. you know? Yeah. I looked at that and I thought we're screwed. 
And that came down from who? The CDC, right? We're screwed because you know that people are going to lie about having it and go in without a mask. The institutions really have a way of fucking us over every time, don't they? Anyway, here we go. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Opus 109. Thank you so much for coming. Scott, as we uh, work ahead, you know, I'm always working ahead than where we are with the opuses. So when I'm getting into like the 114, 115, those numbers, it's climbing. Yeah. It's climbing. And we couldn't climb without y'all. Thank you so much for returning. If you're a new listener, thank you for checking us out. This is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and thinks about it differently, recontextualize it, maybe even decolonizing it. We're going to talk about decolonization, post-colonial music, and everything in between with today's guest. I'll tell you a little bit more about John in the third movement. Uh, but before we get into the first movement, I want to uh, send another thanks, a continued thanks to the Shuttleworth Foundation for your support of Triloquy. I also want to give a shout out to Spectrix for having the Black Opera Alliance at uh, one of your conferences last week. It was incredible and such an honor uh, for me to present in front of an international consortium Look of at you. arts admin. I, I put on Twitter, Scott, in my pajama pants. I mean, this is the 21st century. There was a time when I would have had to wake up and iron a shirt and put on a tie. And I sat right here in this chair in my hey, pajama, and I put on a black t-shirt. At, so, least, you know, you weren't, there. at least you weren't running around like Winnie. <laughs> like what? Oh, oh. <laughs> Shout out to Megan the Stallion. (laughs) And um, I want to give a shout out and a thank you to the Lakes Area Music Festival. I was on their Lampcast series uh, for the past several, for the past four weeks. So, Scott, for the past month on Saturday mornings, I've gotten up at about six o'clock in the morning to do some reading and some research and to write a presentation. But um, they were all phenomenal. They were all uh, highlighted some really incredible music, some incredible stories stories that I was able to share. So a huge shout out to um, Scott and Taylor at the Lakes Area Music Festival. I'm looking forward to being in Brainerd in person uh, this weekend. So if you're in the area, we will uh, see you there. I will see you there anyway. But in the meantime, let's go ahead and get into movement one. What you're looking at over there? I just wanted to make sure that I had the correct location for one of my accidentals, one of my sharps this week. So uh, I was looking around all over the place and I couldn't find where the location was, but I got it. All right, we'll get to that in a second. The first sharp I want to send out is to Julia Adolph. Okay. Yeah. And really, I'm also going to give a a sharp Scott to the promo team over there. I'm telling you. You, you saw Loose Leaf Notebook with Julia Adolph on your social media. Yeah. There is no getting around it. Yeah. <laughs> I had six <laughs> notifications. I had many, many more. So, I know, yeah. I'm joking. So, who, who's, whoever is over there retweeting it, uh, New Music USA, shout out to y'all. Y'all always do a really great job of and promoting new music the work box. that's happening. New Music Box. New Music Box one. as well. So, yeah. The, the retweets, shout out to that. But um, I just wanted to um, 
quickly cover it. I know we uh, we had a lot going on last week and it kind of uh, slipped our plans, but I listened back and I really appreciated, uh, you know, a conversation that centers mental health with one arm on music. I know we're over here, you know, fighting the good fight and right. doing all that, but right. mental health is uh, and mental wealth and all of that is a uh, is very important as well. So I appreciate it. I found the conversation pretty refreshing. It was, for me, it was great to be interviewed because normally I'm on the other side of the microphone. So so I know what you're talking about now, about how it's like wearing somebody else's shoes for a little bit. Right, right, right. What did you think about the way cannabis played a role in the conversation we definitely spent plenty of time there are you more comfortable uh (laughs) telling strangers about your weed smoking than you were a year ago two years ago look (laughs) how i came up that's never going to be comfortable for me oh really it's i just i just don't think it is i mean it's it from even though i wasn't smoking it in junior high and high school yeah i looked at everybody else around me like hit it once with the lighter and they're covering it up yeah. and make sure it doesn't burn and they're making sure that their clothes don't smell and trying to dot their eyes with visine right they're, everything had to be hidden 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 yeah yeah and so when you grow up like that that's going to be something you know and if you got caught with it you were going to go to juvie sure sure it's a different world you got to free your mind I, I know it's going to be do, hard do we need to free our minds right now even or right. we'll wait till after mm. okay <laughs> um the last thing i wanted to touch on and ask you scott where else do you think classical music needs to go as far as these peripheral conversations, challenging the status quo, music and mental health? I know um, Hop Notes was a thing for a while. I think that might be a worthwhile project to reconsider or think about again. Or maybe we can get that under the Triloquy umbrella. Who knows? It would be. It would have to be revamped yeah. to have the conversations that I would like to have. I think there are a lot of great uh, cross-pollination conversations there. I wanna, uh, I'll want i shout out uh, the Brewing Change Collaborative. Dell and I actually hung out with them out at Prize uh, last week. Mm-hmm. On the same day, they do something called River Rats. Do you know what that is? I don't, sorry. It's it's water skiing competitions right there on the river. By, so, of course, there was no parking anywhere. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Dell and I walked down the trail through the park. Anyway, it was a nice view, nice to you know get to a new part of town. We don't go over to Minneapolis uh, to that side all that much anyway so shout out to prize miraculum it's a great brew so uh anyway where i was going with that was if it weren't for that group i don't know if i would be rushing to go into that sort of brewery space i mean and and it's nothing against any what's that it's nothing against any individual brewery but it just always seems kind of bro-y and just very white up in there and it makes you know so having a group of folks to be with and then you know not only black folks but black folks in the brewing industry who can mm-hmm. you know kind of just be there to to be that buddy pass that that companion i appreciate it you know that actually uh going to brewing change collaborative event at prize it actually um inspired Dell and i on saturday evening to go check out Arbiter. This is not an ad. I'm just talking. Uh, another brewery uh, over on the Minneapolis side, and it's actually right uh, close to the former Third Precinct. And 
you know, that building is there, just the scar of the past. But you have this really fun brewery, and there was a, a taco truck out there. Oh, good. I don't want to chase the rabbit. Sorry, y'all. I don't want to chase the <laughs> rabbit too far off the path. Um, shout out to, again, uh, Julia Adolph. Thank you very much. We're going to listen uh, to uh, one of her compositions here in a second. But I wanted to ask you, now that I'm thinking about it, that second brewery I went to, Arbiter, is, uh, you know, near the third precinct. What should be done with that building? It is something to drive to that part of town, and you see that the target that they tow up is rebuilt and, you know, back to order. You know, streets, for the most part, are cleaned up. There are still some boards on some buildings, but Mm -hmm. that third precinct in itself, it just looks like this cold, hard reminder of just how rough stuff here was last summer, how wild of a summer that was. Should it be turned into, Dell said they need to turn it into a dispensary, you know, when, when legalization comes. But I feel like it has to be something even more powerful. There has to be a way for us to remember that night and maybe not just leave the building the way it is. But I don't know. Have you ever thought about that? Do you have any thoughts? An urban law center. Urban law, a place for, but and you know how quick they'll you know turn well, into a I, bail I, bond I, or something. No, but yeah. no, what I'm saying, I don't. I, I thought you were going. After, I thought you were going after me over urban law center. I was going to say, I just don't know what the word for that sure, is yet. Sure, sure. A community law center, a place yeah. where people can go and get consultations for free. Mm-hmm. You know, to help them out of sticky situations. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it can be a plaza where you know you can get. Um, Law help over here, and maybe some medical over here, and you maybe know. there can be a museum aspect. Sure, where, you know, there yeah, are yeah, pictures gonna, from right. you know that night. I was going to say, you know, uh, maybe uh, a, an art space. Yeah, yeah, for dance, music. Um, yeah. visual art, anything, yeah. I mean, it, I can picture like some sort of performance in, even in front of the building as it is now. That would be mm. you know, a very striking image. Yeah. Um, anyway, so again, a uh, huge thank you to uh, Julia Adolph. I can't wait to feature Julia Adolph on Triloquy, and we're, we're, we'll return to some of these conversations. Do you have that lined up? It's not lined up yet. I'm going to ask. You're going to be a part of uh, it. No, I, no it's just, I, know, I know that you said that you were planning up into the 110s, so I just yeah. didn't know if if you had that scheduled, Julia has a, a a premiere coming up, I believe, with the um, with the L.A. Phil. I think we were trying to uh, coordinate it around that. But I'll um, shout out to Julia. Hey, Julia, I'm going to send you an email uh, sometime this week. We're we're both leaving out of town, going on vacation this week. So tomorrow morning early. Yeah, yeah same for me. We're going to different places. We'll, I'm sure we'll have stories next week. But anyway, um, to get us to our next accidental, I thought we would listen to a Julia Adolph composition. This is performed by the Kaleidoscope Chamber Orchestra, a work called Veil of leaves. Let's take a listen. That makes me think about the veil we all put up when it comes to mental health so often. Mm. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine, but you're not fine. You know. Did you hear the, all that space, though? Yeah. Shout out Julia. I love all the space in there and the uh, the little bit of dissonance mm-hmm. that they were creating. That was really nice. And it really takes some uh, musical communication 
from the artists as well to be able to breathe in that way. Shout out to uh, Chelsea Sharp over there on uh, Viola. All right, well, uh, up next, I, I have, we have three sharps to hand out. So a sharp to Michelle Can, one to Randall Gooseby, and one to Karen Slack, the latest Sphinx Medal of Excellence. Recipients have been announced. I'll read a little bit here from sphinxmusic.org. On March 17th, 2022, Sphinx will honor three outstanding artists whose accomplishments distinguish them among musicians in the field, Michelle Kane, Randall Gooseby, and Karen Slack. The awards will be bestowed at the official Sphinx Medals of Excellence Luncheon, and honorees will be celebrated at a black tie private dinner in Washington, D.C. So huge shout out to wow. them. We're going to talk about uh, Randall Gooseby later today. We, I, I have yeah. to I have to back him up today. I knew that was coming. We're going to get to that in the Triloquy. Uh, we've talked about uh, Michelle Can uh, on Triloquy before. Again, the stories I always tell, Michelle Can was my last interview at WUOT-FM when uh, she helped me and the rest of the Knoxville Symphony perform an incredible uh, rendition of Florence Price's single movement piano concerto. Just really turned on um, an audience and a community to you know what so many of us center in our work and in mm. our conversations these days uh, of course over over there at the Curtis Institute now so huge congrats to Michelle can uh Karen slack I don't know uh personally we are peripherally connected through the uh, Black Opera Alliance and those communities. Right. Uh, I look forward to uh, reaching out to Karen and um, learning more about her. Karen, follow me on Twitter today. Thank you for following me, Karen. Oh, so she'll be hearing this <laughs> Wednesday then. Shout out to Karen Slack as well. Uh, Karen has a, a, a Facebook show called Kiki Conversation. So we're mm. talking about, you know, that side of the classical thing, you know, uh, just, you know, getting down, having a glass of wine and just you know, kiki in a little bit. Isn't so. that being true? <laughs> to, yeah, it can be very, very true. Some of the conversations that is they kiki get into, more, Is kiki more, more, more like fun? Yeah, and, more fun. Okay, you know, okay. like laughing, like kiki, kiki. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, play on words there. Got anyway, it. shout out to all of y'all. Congratulations. Um, I'm going to say this real, just real quick, Scott. What's the name of this podcast? This is Triloquy, y'all. <laughs> Look, hey, Sphinx, y'all are allowed to fund people without super duper institutional backing in in the coming years i want to see somebody on the ground get one of these i want i want to see i want to see sphinx honor the streets shots fired somebody and i'm not even you know necessarily talking about classical either there are a lot of folks i'm thinking of people here in the twin cities shout out to tish jones who uses hip hop as the means um of course we've uh, really honored paviel a uh, paviel french over the course of triloquy i think she would be a really great recipient of the sphinx medal of excellence for the things that she's done here in the community so mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. let's let's um let's let's broaden it up and congratulations to the recipients. Um, among the many incredible things that Sphinx does is, of course, supporting uh, Sphinx Virtuosi, um, a recording, Scott, that we're all familiar with is uh, Sphinx Virtuosi's rendition of the uh, Sinfonietta Number no. 1 of Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. I said that slow you got because it. I always <laughs> slip and say Percocet. <laughs> Coleridge Taylor uh, Perkinson. Um, this is, of course, conducted by um, Damon Gupton. Just, you know, all sorts of really great stuff that uh, is going on over there that Sphinx has been doing for the past couple decades. Looking forward to the next conference, Scott. I hope that, you know, the world 
world is here <laughs> in late February and we can work out a way to uh, go to the conference again. You know, I think Triloquy needs to be there. It's going to be over in the other hotel this year, though, right? Yeah, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I'll show you a little bit more of Detroit and we can listen to some blues and eat some barbecue and all that. But yeah, so uh, as we transition here to our next accidental, uh, once again, here is Sphinx Virtuosi and music of Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. Damon Gupton's uh, TV stuff. Like, I, don't, I don't think so. Yeah, you know, because I, I forget the names of the shows right now, but uh, uh, True Crime, I think, was one. Or, oh, you know, uh -huh. all, you know, the, the, the con conductor there. So shout uh -huh. out, shout out to the uh, conductors with all of these multiple talents. And, you know, being a great actor, you know, must be a, a, a require or a requirement to be a, a, <laughs> a conductor. I mean, something that helps. <laughs> okay, fine. Okay, fine. <laughs> Freudian slip. Y'all be up there acting. No. Shout out. Sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they do. Sometimes we say the quiet parts out loud. <laughs> sometimes the, look, I've worked with a lot of conductors. Some of them be putting on up there. Okay. Uh, shout out to Damon Gupton. No shade. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> and shout out to Speaks uh, <laughs> Virtuosi. Yeah, that slipped right on out. Tune in next week yeah. <laughs> and listen to Garrett dig himself out of the hole he's in. Yeah, I'm going to go on my apology tour. <laughs> anyway, okay. What you uh, got, Scott? Well, you know, <laughs> you I got a show. I have to, yeah, I do. I have to say, uh, you know, last week was great with Classically Dope and yeah. uh, Conscience the Rapper. Yeah, um, yeah, Conscience great, the MC. Uh, I'm sorry, Conscience the MC. What a, what, what a great interview. And and I've just visited my people uh, quite a few times since yeah. then. It's yeah. just, it's. It's like I said then, it's great to have on in the background. It's also great for intentional paying attention to everything listening. Yeah. But <clears throat> excuse me, along that same line is uh, the ensemble Black Violin. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that I, I just want to shout these people out, uh, this, this ensemble out, so that if you are nearby and you can go and hear them, this would be a great way to expose yourself to more art that's like classically dope, that's like yeah. the ill harmonic, you know, mm -hmm. uh, these blending of styles. Um, so uh, just to give you a little bit of background on Black Violin, they are a Grammy-nominated duo blending classical and hip-hop, and they are going to be playing at the Jimmy Dean Theater. Is that any way associated to the sausages? Maybe they have... Uh, get, uh, like instead of popcorn sausages, <laughs> uh, I don't know. But they uh, uh, out in Virginia, they're going to be performing at the Baxter Perkinson Center for the Arts and Education in Chester on Thursday, August twelfth. And I just want to share one little bit of this article that we will uh, post in the description. Uh, will one of the members here, uh, you know, hitting on something that we hit on all the time? 
the stereotypes are always there embedded so deep in our culture. Mm -hmm. Just by nature of our existence, we challenge those ideas. He's talking about with his music and and, uh, integrating hip-hop and classical. It's a unique thing that brings people together who aren't usually in the same room. And in the current climate, it's good to bring people together. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I What I scrolled immediately to was right above that quote. It says, these performances aim to challenge stereotypes and preconceived notions of what classical musicians look like and what else? Sound like. That is the part. Right. That is the part where I, I get so frustrated where we won't go. What We're going to listen to a little bit of a black violin, a, a tune, you know, specifically called Stereotypes. What we're about to hear, I think, is the, the least of what the stations and the concert halls can do. This sort of aesthetic, there is nothing unclassical about it. There's nothing that disqualifies it from classical, from 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 that status. And I think this, you know, is is exactly where we need to go. This isn't nearly as radical as I think classical spaces, the conversation of classical music needs to go, but I think this is an incredible first step and the first step we need to take, of course, you know, if we come down from my dreams and hopes, the reality is that most folks in positions of power would not put this in those spaces, mm. despite the fact that they have found spaces. You know, again, this um, this concert happening at Jimmy Dean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just I don't know. I, I'm not putting you I'm, I hate to put you on the spot. But when you don't talk, hate to put me but on when the we spot. talk about, you know, OK, 10 years in the future, 20 years in the future. How how long how how far away is black violin on oh, classical radio? No, 20 years? No, it's no, 20 years. That's what it is. No, I got dragged the last All right, time. All right. Uh, no, no, no. You're not putting the safe. Don't put this. Don't put me on safe. It's fine. Don't worry about it. You're asking me. Don't worry about it. You're asking me to prognosticate. <laughs> and when I tell the truth and what, from what I see and hear, then I get dragged. Let's listen. Let's listen. I even lost my train of thought listening to that. You know, just that that that's that's where that's where we have to go. We have to stop othering that type of music and include it in the classical canon, be in the classical playlists and the classical programs because it is. There's nothing not classical about it as far as I'm concerned and not as far as they're concerned either. Let's go back. What opus was it that you interviewed uh the Cellist, uh, the bassoonist Joey. What's their last name? Oh, uh, it's now uh, Joy. Joy. So, yeah, shout out to Joy. Yeah. Um, because you indicated in your interview with them that there w- it was going to take some time to train people mm-hmm. out of these terminologies yeah. of what we classify music as and what header we should put them under. Yeah. So how long do you think it's going to be? 
I think it's if if they would let us in the rooms in the buildings, um, two, four, maybe six years. But I feel like a part of the battle, the time we have to build in, is getting into those spaces, a, and getting into uh, positions of influence and power in those spaces. So I'll give it. I'll say I don't know. I'm 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 not gonna play it safe. I'm gonna say. 20 years, maybe in 20 years, we'll see that change, but it's going to take half of that for us to get in there, you know? So let's start here. And if you are nearby and you can go and check out Black Violin, they're at the Baxter Perkinson Center for the Arts and Education in Chester, Thursday, August 12th. Please attend if you can. If you if you like it, spread the word, because that is a step in yeah, the process that you're talking. Oh, about. I know, I know what I was going to ask you when I lost my train of thought. This uh, this video from 2015, you know, that we just listened to, stereotypes. Black violin has 4.2 million views. Okay, so, and I'm not, I'm not being cute here. I'm asking for real. In in your world, how does that stack up? How how if if you produce something for APM that got 4.2 million views, would that be mid range? Would that be high? Would that be low? I would say that would be high. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I my my point is this music definitely has an audience. Okay? Sure, sure. I haven't produced anything that has 4.2 million views, so there's something significant about that. And I'm not even all about the numbers, you know. But I think it can't be ignored. Certainly, you know. Anyway, all right, so uh, getting into our, is this the final accidental? It is. Uh, It's a flat, of course. I'm also going (laughs) to. Oh, no. You've heard about what's going on down in Texas. I have. Uh, Which going on? The, uh, well, the social media (laughs) and the articles were saying a few days ago, Texas banning teaching about the Martin you know, Luther King hor- the horribleness of the KKK and Martin Luther King as we were preparing to talk about this today I uh, found something from uh, wfaa.com is uh, a local news affiliate uh, to somewhere it says no Texas has not banned schools from teaching about MLK's speeches or KKK's history with white supremacy okay I'm, I'm just gonna read a the, little bit what's the TLDR on this yeah that's what I'm getting to okay <laughs> Here we go. A Texas Senate bill got nationwide attention on July when it went viral for, quote, eliminating requirements that public schools teach that the KKK is morally wrong. But the attention on the bill didn't stop there. On an Instagram post, more than 180,000 likes claimed the bill, quote, has banned primary schools from teaching a number of topics, including Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, etc. I'm going to scroll down a little bit here. Uh, This news article is, you know, trying to clear things up and be the objective X, Y, and Z. So what they write here is no. While the Texas Senate did pass a bill that removes language from a recent law requiring school curriculums to include lessons on historical social justice movements, uh, the bill can't currently become law while Texas House Democrats continue to prevent votes by leaving the state in protest of voter suppression law. So you see how we have already gone somewhere else? You see, you, you see how they how they pivot the conversation like that. Of course. Why are you trying to soften the blow that there are folks in positions of power at past Senate for y'all to do this? Where we understand that this is not yet law. 
we also understand that the the uh, the Senate down there is trying to make it law, and it right. has crossed one barrier. It's made one step. That's the first thing that really pisses me off. Just trying to you know soften the blow as if uh, it passing passing in the Senate is a good thing or something not to worry about or be concerned about. But then they even, you know, pivot it to say, but you need to be worrying about the Democrats because they're talking about voter suppression and then, you know, it it makes me sick. It really pisses me off. I have a problem with the headline only because it makes you go, Oh wait. So somebody's spinning this a way that I haven't thought of or that I didn't hear. Uh, You know, I thought there was additional information and they go, it's, no, it, the, we didn't do it. We haven't voted on that yet. I mean, that's a pretty flimsy <laughs> follow-up to the headline, if you ask I me. I don't understand. I want to know the justification of this from these Republican senators. I mean, are they going to mm. tell me, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make any comparisons. Let me not get problematic. But what what could they possibly say about this as as far as you know why they voted to to push it forward what's the justification did they did the kkk have some breakfast program that we don't know about did you know what what are they other than a hate filled group so even it, it doesn't seem like i would even want to touch that be near that but mm. a lot of these lawmakers did you hear about i won't bother pulling it up or nothing but did you hear about the <clears throat> the um i think it was a, a city council meeting down in alabama where I this did. man called her a, a house in yep dropped a hard end right there in the <laughs> middle yeah and people said you should resign and he said he probably doubled down but he was when they when they were talking to him he was like would you consider yourself a racist he was like well by what um i usually consider racism but uh, uh, i would say no that's uh angela yee off the breakfast club uh, she tickled me she said that's like when you ask a man did he cheat <laughs> like not you, what i call like, cheating. like well you have to start getting technical and doing all that anyway so i wanted to mention that because it's serious and music and music programming and music presentation, you know, has an even bigger responsibility in light of these things. I think about uh, my show that's aired down there, The Sound of 13, you know, what other uh, classical hosts who reach down there into those regions could do with their presentations to fight against this. If you have, you know, you can't talk about composers like um, Joseph White for example, you know, these early 20th century, uh, Harry Thacker Berlay, you can't talk about that and not put it in the context of the horrors that was happening. So if uh, Senate Republicans down in uh, in Texas are working to get certain conversations out of the classroom, out of the general discourse, we have an opportunity as, uh, as musicians and, and uh, music presenters to fight against that. I think, you know, it's, it's, easy to make those connections and to, mm. you know, uh, uh, to spread that knowledge where we can, you know, and, and that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm not asking you, Scott, to write a break about the, the KKK, but some of the stuff, you know, even Martin Luther King's writings are, you know, on the chopping block. There's there's plenty of ways to incorporate that. There's even music. Joseph Schwantner wrote a piece of music that incorporates narration of uh, different Martin Luther King Jr. speeches. Right. So, you know, my, my point is musicians... We, we're in this battle too, and we have weapons that we can use in this battle. And those weapons, um, 
that it, it's the music and and uh, and, and the ho- history and stories around it. I didn't want to leave this conversation, Scott, without bringing up Daryl Davis. So uh, a few months back, I had the uh, opportunity to facilitate a conversation, a panel with the um, with a library system out um, by Washington D.C. and Daryl Davis was uh, on the panel. So for folks who don't know who he is, I'm reading. Um, from nationalpublicradio.org, how one man convinced 200 Ku Klux Klan members to give up their robes. It says, Daryl Davis is a blues musician, but he also has what some might call an interesting hobby. For the past 30 years, Davis, a black man, has spent time befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan. So I'll let y'all post it and let y'all read here. Long story short, he uh, talks about, Daryl Davis talks about how he would, you know, uh, be playing music in different places and folks would really love the music and come chat them up and X, Y, and Z. And it would come up that these are Klan members and he wouldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that somebody who has it in their heart to uh, talk with me and appreciate my music. I can I can connect with this person and I can you know see what's going on there. So he's made it his hobby, and apparently two hundred of them are are good white people now. Wow. Well, we did say it uh, in our interview with Julia. You have to do what you can, where you can, when you can. So man, he did a lot. That's of a those. lot. That is a lot. I'm maybe I need to aspire to that. I don't have it in me. I don't yeah. have it in me because fuck all y'all in the clan. As far as I'm concerned, I don't give a goddamn. Hats off to Daryl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, music is the key. Music can educate where folks are trying to erase, and apparently, music can even make connections between a black blues singer and clan members. Don't email me about the triloquy picture this week, okay? <laughs> don't email me. I but it was I, good. but I, but if you want to see an example of, of what we're talking about. Yes, there. Anyway, as we transition into the second movement to take the second ending for this week, we're going to listen to a performance uh, featuring Ted's Roots Band. Daryl Davis here singing a tune called Leave Me Alone. says he doesn't want to walk with anyone else he's talking about something else too do you know that i i've okay. uh okay. i've inkled that yeah okay just making sure thanks <laughs> what, 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 what'd you think of that the, the sound of that band that sounds like a bit of your bag there that general aesthetic sounds like a great um it sounds like a great night out at a at a blues club yeah yeah I want to I want to do that soon as as the world is opening up and hopefully more of y'all are getting y'all's vaccines. I want to go somewhere where um, see every time I describe in my mind where I want to be, I remember that y'all don't let me smoke my weed in public. <laughs> y'all don't let me smoke my weed in the building, so that's probably true. But I'll still go. I'll have a I'll have a cocktail and listen to a nice blues band. I've found out recently I'm going to have to work into it. I get anxious. I've been yeah. get, I've been getting anxious in crowds. I feel a little itchy. Like yeah. you're too close. I don't want to be crowded. Crowded. Don't yeah. And I have been places where there are people, but yeah, I'm definitely not ready for the shoulder to shoulder. It was a bit mm-hmm. crowded uh, at the Eagle the other weekend for Pride, and it was Pride, so I was prepared for that that general feeling of a lot of people. But I know what you mean. But yeah. 
anyway, shout out to uh, Daryl Davis. Um, the work is fascinating. I think Daryl Davis would be an excellent Triloquy guest. I'll, I'll have to reach out to his team as well because cool. I have lots of questions about that. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're here in the second ending where um, a song that we or a piece we have been repeating over and over again, uh, all week, we're taking the second ending now to um, talk about what fascinated us about the music. So um, what I'm going to bring in this week, Scott, uh, I'll, I'll give this a little context. So on the weekends or in free time, Dell and I will go on YouTube and just watch uh, what they now call memes. You know, just, you know. I've been these, doing that too. It's And it's kind of fun, just little, uh, I, I call it people TV, you know, like the people <laughs> channel, just right. to see what people do. Anyway, so in a lot of them, you'll see uh, repeated themes. Maybe a lot of videos use the same music or use the, you know, whatever. One of them uh, brought me to a performance of a Finnish polka. I hope I'm performing, uh, pronouncing this correctly, the Yevin polka. It's a, um, a Finnish tune that's in all sorts of versions. They're orchestral versions of the uh, melody, pop versions, choral versions, but the version of it that keeps making it all through social media, these TikTok videos, uh, features uh, a drummer named Bilal Gorigan. And uh, I want to take just take a listen to this. Now, what the people can't see is that there's a cat bobbing his head, yeah, it's, it's superimposed on this video, and I'm vibing right with it. which has become good. an integral part of a long-standing social media joke. And look, it has 64 million views. There are millions of people around the world who now know this Finnish polka, and I think that's really powerful. tell you something when we were watching that downstairs both you and Dell were vibing with the cat you were both bobbing your head <laughs> because that's a bop that goes but i don't think i don't think listening to it and watching the bobbing hat kit the bobbing head cat i don't think that you can avoid not bobbing your own along with it so this is my point there are many versions of that. Maybe the program directors don't want to put respect on Bilal Gorgon and just put that recording on the radio. They'll find the orchestral or the choral. Even so, the kid, the zennial, the Gen Z kid that's sitting there and happens to be listening to classical music in the bank or wherever they're just piping uh, the music through, they will hear that music. And instantly think of, you know, this social media thing that any of us who watch these memes know, and you've connected with a new audience in that way. When I think about um, expanding classical music, expanding that phrase, you know, getting into Finnish polkas is a part of that. And not only in itself, but, you know, doing the research of understanding what's, what the tick of the room is, you know, what the what the younglings are familiar with, and finding a way to incorporate that. That would be the story. I would, if I were on the radio and any version of that polka came on, I would make reference to Bilal Gorgon's performance, Make probably make a joke about a head bobbing cat or whatever, and I've connected with a few more people in a in a unique way. So that's what I've been repeating all week, thinking about that. You said Bilal is in Turkey. Uh, he's Turkish. Turkish. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's Turkish. So uh, all these other versions of it are they putting their own regional spin on it? Then. Yeah. Yeah. I want to. 
let me see if I can find really quick that uh, the, the choir, the Finnish choir that was doing it. Let's see here. Yeah, this group. This will probably hit more with the Minnesotans. <laughs> Y'all love choir. <laughs> no, it's good. I'm still vibing my head, though. So that's what I'm saying. How come they didn't put the cat on that one? <laughs> well, b- because this one doesn't bop as well, but still, it has 43 million views. I'm sure there's a lot mm-hmm. of overlap there. Yeah. So, you know, what if you could uh, look at the, what do you call the books that the radio people do, the Nielsen data? Mm-hmm. You know, what if there was just one random 43 million spike or something? <laughs> right. And it's because of that piece of music and the connection you made because you understand what's going on in social media. You have a young friend. and that's you know, in, yeah. in, Anyway, shout out to um, the Yevon polka that choir that you heard uh they're called loituma i'll have both of those linked um in the in the, in the description all right scott what's your uh what you got this week as far as a, a second ending uh i wanted to first shout out my friend bill jenks uh he and i used to work together at kvno he was in town having mm-hmm. some adjustments done to his custom made cello that was mm-hmm. done here in the twin cities so we got to hook up and have some lunch and I've been listening to uh, cello showpieces, I guess you could say, sure. ever since. And one of them that I wanted to bring in was, uh, I think it's 2014 that this yep. was published. Yes, it's July 2014. The, the cellist's name is Narek Haknazarian. He's a 32-year-old year Armenian cellist. Uh, Ten years ago, 2011, he won the Tchaikovsky International competition and walked away with gold. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really encouraged that such a young man um, is... Uh, the the piece that I wanted to share was written by an, another f- um, young man. He's now 58, so when this was written, he would have been about what I, age I am now. Sure. So it gives me some hope that there's some, you know, uh, middle age and youth working together to sure. keep hey. the music going. Hey, here we are. So uh, the performance is of Giovanni Solima's Lamentatio, and you talk about recurring themes and remembering things as they come back around. There's like four parts of this cello piece. All of them burn in different ways. that play um as we're talking here a little bit it's it what, what what i'm thinking about as we as we listen to this it seems like the encore to you know in context of this performance like he played a concerto and this is you know the the encore or whatever that would make sense because man he's got sweat dripping off of him i would love for this to be the main event i'm sure he plays a beautiful elgar i want to hear this mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, really incredible. The other thing that I noticed out of this when we watched it earlier, I am just blown away at the intonation, and I almost hate to say that. It'll make sense later in the interview, but (laughs) the intonation Mm -hmm. that he's playing Mm -hmm. with, jumping all over that fretboard, it's not like his fret's there for him to look where his finger's at. He is just going. He knows his instrument that much. He He has practiced that much. Wow. So incredible! That, that's it's, a, it's total that's, investment. That's it's uh, it's hypnotic to watch him play it simply because of of how lost he is in it. Yeah, he is Lamentadio uh, yeah. by Giovanni uh, Salisma at that yeah. point. So we'll have uh, all of that linked in the description. All right. So uh, this week's guest is John Silpayamanan. He is a, a researcher, a cellist. Yeah, you know, that's why we get into some of the cello stuff, I suppose. Uh, uh, a cellist and uh, someone who's really uh, throwing some interesting ideas out into the classical music ecosystem. Two works of his that I'm going to link. Uh, one speaks to post-colonial orchestras in Indonesia. So the idea that after um, Indonesia uh, left its colonial period by you know other countries, mm-hmm. the music has to change too. We're done with that Western stuff. We're centering Indonesian music. You know, so how that movement impacted the ecosystem there. Um, but even more famously, John. Um, has written, you know, many many folks have, but John has written about slave orchestras. Right. The fact that there have been people who have been forced to play this Western classical music. And I can't, I'm not going to go on a rant now because I want y'all to hear the interview, but that is something. And if you think about how that applies to today, when we talk about orchestral fellowship programs and the way we're getting the you know, unlearned, unwashed, extra trained in this in this field so that, you know, you have a place that you can go and X, Y, and Z. It just feels like assimilation school when I think about that. And I can't help but to go there when I think about the slave orchestra. So um, anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Another really interesting point that uh, John brings up that I want to highlight here is the idea of singing out of tune. He tells a story about how his mom, uh, who is Thai, would sing Thai songs. And because the tuning system is different from the Western classical to his ear, you know, through his decolonized thinking, at, at least at that time she was singing out of tune we kind of touched on that conversation when Nirmala was on the show back on season one you know all the way to just considering how colonization impacts things like the concept of being in tune Mm. it's really heavy stuff but John is really doing the work so to get us into that interview I wanted to play the honorable mention for my um, second ending this week I've been returning to the performance of Christian Tomblay a Christian is a drummer who takes Western classical string quartets and adds some seasoning. And it really brings the performances to life. I know you're familiar with uh, his music. Yep. You think you think uh, we could ever have this on the classical radio? I think we can. It's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. How long I'm being again? real. Okay, no, don't do me. Because I, did, I tried. I tried. Okay, hey, hey, hey. So... It's up to you. I guess it's up to you then. Mm -hmm. All right. Anyway, here's my uh, conversation with John Siliapayaman. And here uh, is a little bit of Christian Chamblay playing some drums to Bartok's string quartet number four. Yeah, let's uh, 
that and definitions in general or descriptors in general are just always they're, they're meant to be exclusive and inclusive you know they include mm-hmm. specific things they exclude specific things but obviously different people different uh uh, speaking communities have different connotations for what that means for inclusion right. and exclusion. Um, I think obviously for most people, uh, classical music just means orchestras, string quartets, opera, whatever, ballet. We don't think of concert bands or choir even, you know, right. Sure. Works. It's a huge, in the U S it's, it's probably the most ubiquitous type of ensemble that we have outside of, uh, concert bands <laughs> being the yeah. next, um, so we don't think of those. And obviously then there's that whole issue of it being a specific period and era in, in the whole tradition of Western music. And right. then using uh, the idea of Western art music, I think is a little more broad. And also I've had this conversation with some uh, uh, some people in the past that the whole idea of calling it Western helps to bring in the whole idea of uh, the history of Western civilization civilization as being a, co- a colonializing enterprise. Mm-hmm. If you leave out the Western, then it, it's it's almost like you leave out that part of the connotation of a definition. So, you know, there, there are so many different ways uh, to, to use that. And I think for me, I tend to use classical music in its broadest sense to include all those excluded composers within the tradition that we consider the mainstream, as well as all of those uh, types of ensembles, composers, musicians that have been heavily influenced by it, especially in like hybridized types of ensembles and, and regions and uh, regions that have hybridized types of music, um, which we don't, we wouldn't necessarily even consider Western if if not classical. Um, right. So it, you know, the whole idea of having slave orchestras. <laughs> most of those orchestras were not in the Western world or were sure. in the global South or were in, yeah. in, in other countries that we wouldn't even consider having any sort of classical music tradition. And yet here they are playing Beethoven and, and Wagner and Handel in, in, in Indonesia and South Africa and Brazil. Right. And, uh, and for centuries in some cases. Uh, and then of course, composers started to emerge in those areas as well as uh, more, um, I guess, strictly, in that European sense, classical types of uh, uh, ensembles and, and musicians. Yeah, yeah. It, t- it took a while to build up the infrastructure to create that type of ecosystem that allowed those to exist as a West quote Western classical music ensemble. Right. Yeah. So, we'll we'll get into uh, the slave orchestras here in a minute because I think that's very fascinating. But you know the way that you emphasize that word Western, you know, makes me think of a word that I use a lot in my work: decolonize. I know anti-colonial is a, a phrase that people will see across your work. I wonder what um, you know again, and considering what you said uh, concerning the Western aspect of Western classical music, Western art music. I wonder um, what that concept means to you to decolonize or anti-colonial music and uh, and really how you got started in all of that. Did, did you play a, a concert that had Handel one day and you just threw your bow down and you were saying this is enough is enough? You know, how did you how did how did you get uh, start and down this path, this thought path? <laughs> that, that's funny. <laughs> I, <laughs> that's I, what happened to I, me. I, no. I'm just getting this visual image of myself doing that now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, in so, some days I do feel like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but um, I, I, okay, uh, this, this is probably going to be. Uh, 
I, I need to express my pos- positionality, I guess, in the, in this sure. case, because I, I grew up uh, by uh, sort of by uh, bicultural and by uh, bilingual. Um, I'm half Thai, and so in in my household we listen to Thai music all the time, and that was uh, you know it's, it's just a part of my childhood. I, I was able to sing those songs. Um, my mother would teach me other songs, especially once I got to the age where I just stopped wanting to learn to speak Thai or wanting to continue speaking Thai. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but that already gave me an idea of what it meant to hide some musical culture from my outside life. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I couldn't go, no one even knew, <laughs> no one knew about Thailand. You know, it's, it's like of all the Asian countries, Thailand probably <clears throat> has have fewer uh, racial slurs attached to it or just stereotypes attached to it, at least dirt while I was growing up. Now, obviously yeah. now there's, it's, it, things have changed because it's, we're much more global, but, um, and, uh, so having that experience of uh, growing up sort of by musically, I, I, I like to use that phrase because like it's, I think it's important to, uh, uh, have that analog to like being bilingual because mm-hmm. you basically are thinking in two different musical languages, um, is a, is a big part of how I eventually started to approach uh, music because I obviously went to music school, got a degree in performance. By the end, I, I literally, after I got my degree, I quit playing the cello <laughs> because I was done. <laughs> sure. And I yeah. quit for eight years. And that's when I really started to explore this broader world of music. I was already doing a little bit of that while I was in school. Uh, anytime they would have someone coming in to do a workshop, like in, in African drumming or Indian raga or something, mm-hmm. I would take, I would just go to those workshops and all those presentations, all those performances. And I loved it. And it, it uh, helped me to re-engage with my own Thai musical uh, past too. So basically it was, it was kind of music school that opened up my uh, world to not just the world music, but uh, I hate that word uh, yeah. <laughs> to, to the broader <laughs> music of, of the globe of the, of the world. Uh, but also I got to experience a lot of new music. Uh, the first year I was in school, uh, I went to DePaul university, DePaul with a W for those who don't know, yeah. which is yep. different than the DePaul with an L. Um, and our first, the first year, our orchestra won the ASCAP award, award for Adventures in Programming. Um, that year, we actually played a new composition on every single concert. And that was just a phenomenal experience. Um, I joined a composer-led ensemble that uh, my freshman year as well, uh, which was great, uh, working with a living composer, for one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my cello professor actually started uh, improvising just a little bit before I went to school and so he made all of his students improvise and that was a completely different way of obviously a different way of approaching music so i've uh been able to pick up those skills which of course opens up a whole different world of musical uh music making so i think i've always had that sort of seed of (laughs) wanting to i don't want to say quit but it it turned into be uh, it turned into a quitting of, of the music but it wasn't that I was quitting music I was still like I said exploring after that um, I don't know if that really answered your question oh, yeah or... <laughs> yeah no def- definitely and and I definitely know that feeling of quitting like for me for example with the bassoon I still very much play the bassoon but I don't play the bassoon on stage for a week rehearsing a Schubert symphony because that's just not <laughs> what I want to do with my life, you know, at least not anymore. You know, right. but but again, back to that phrase anti-colonial or, or decolonize. I know folks, you know, these days we've done a really great job of uh, using the word colonize.
colonizer in a in a certain way, you know. And I feel like when folks hear, you know, decolonize the arts, decolonize classical music, they're thinking, you know, make it unwhite or that it's an attack on on uh, the the European tradition in some day. I, I wonder what your your thoughts are on that specifically decolonizing or anti-colonial classical music. Yeah, that uh, that was the part of the question I forgot <laughs> or got dis- uh, distracted by. Yeah, um, I think we have to understand that there are different traditions of, of I guess we can call it more broadly anti-colonial activity, mm-hmm. uh, obviously in most of like uh, Asia, um, South Asia in, in particular, in the Middle East, uh, we have more of a post-colonial type of criticism of Western culture, whereas in South America, we have more of a decolonial um, uh, tradition. So they're, they're slightly different and they have different focuses. And I think, uh, this decolonization is something that comes from that, from the global South, but especially the global, uh, American South. And, uh, I don't think many people realize that. And it's, it's almost like when people start talk, uh, talking about black music without actually, you know, talking about the people who actually did the scholarship before them, it's just like, as if they were the first ones to discover it or, you know, it's the same, I think, as very similar to that with decolonization is we don't understand the traditions that have led to that word being uh, sort of ubiquitous in our usage. Yeah. Um, as far as how that applies to the actual field, that's tricky because obviously there's been some criticism of, of using that word too much because it is specifically meant to deal uh, with land. The actual mm-hmm. land and indigenous people who uh, indigenous indigenous people who have been displaced by um, well by colonization and and imperialism. So um, and so the usage of it in that sort of metaphorical sense was actually uh, very specifically critiqued in, in a piece uh, about ten years ago, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I think we also have to understand that, you know, going back to the post-colonial side, there's this understanding that it's not just the land, but it's also the people that you colonize, right. because it's we have this this phrase decolonizing the mind, exactly, uh, right? And that that is, uh, I think, very important because you you can't be a colonial subject if you don't think like a colonial subject. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where it can be very useful as a tool to help us to. Um, stop thinking like colonizers and it's really difficult because you know i i'm still discovering things that i would never have thought about in that context uh until i thought until i really really uh just approached it as that the idea that my mind has been colonized and what are the types of behaviors activities that i do that are colonial and how can i stop it or change it or at least address it and i think that's the important thing about decolonization and it it can we can get i don't want to i don't want to be i'm trying not to be dismissive of the criticism for using the word right but i think we need to understand that it's not just a, a purely a land or physical thing it's it's also a uh, very much cultural and uh, mind thing. Yeah, let, let's g- get a little bit into the colonization of the mind. I know there are a lot of people who don't ha- who haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that concept, or you know, maybe new to the concept. I wonder if you can uh, speak to a, a personal or maybe even a, a broad example of how the mind is colonized, especially today. Let, let's, let's talk about for today's American citizen, for example. What are What's an example of the ways in which our minds have been colonized? Um, well, uh, 
like I said, I, I was uh, raised biculturally um, and for a, at least a part of my life bilingually. Uh, I, I actually came to the States uh, as a very, very young immigrant. I was only two. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, I, in, a, in a sense, I sort of experienced that growing up. Uh, and, and I'm sure a lot of people who aren't who don't identify very closely with the majority population uh, right. feel that way as well to some extent. Um, so, so you have uh, these uh, sort of assimilative pressures that, that, that you need to, uh, that, that make you want to fit into the culture. That's mm-hmm. a part of the colonization process. And in some cases during the colonial area, that was a very specific uh, type of technique to be used. I mean, residential schools that right. indigenous people experienced, that was, that was colonization. It was, you know, it was a violent physical act, but it was also a violent uh, emotional and mental act because they were basically training the culture out of them. And that's what they literally were saying, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, what was it? The phrase was kill the Indian, save the person, something to Ooh. that effect. Yikes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, in a sense, it, where do you draw the line between, uh, like just normal learning, normal education and, and being able to acculturate into, uh, your specific country, your specific region. And where, do, where's that line drawn from that? And it being an actual colonial practice that, you know, uh, is trying to turn you into something that you're not. And I guess that's, that's the really tricky part, the really tricky yep. line to, cross and there there's so many things that are intertwined and you realize you unravel one strand and it's tangled up in some other strand and um so as far as uh, examples i i think um you know when uh, when i here's here's one of my earliest examples and and i I've, I've told this story many times and i still i still feel terrible about it because i remember when um i started to think my mom was singing out of tune when she would sing <laughs> okay. Thai songs and i'm like okay you know, when I got to music school, uh, when I started exploring, you know, my, again, my Thai musical roots, I realized, oh, well, you know, Thai tuning systems are completely different than Western tuning systems. So this is not long after I started playing the cello and was taught how to play in tune, quote, right. unquote. <laughs> So-called <laughs> and, intonation. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's like how, that, that, you know, I think about it and, and, uh, for a kid, I, I'm just thinking, wow, it, it, it's just, it's it's kind of terrible to think, you know, your mom is just singing music wrong. <laughs> you yeah. know, why? Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel bad about it. I feel guilt. I still feel guilt about that because it's like, I, lo- I love listening to Thai music and I still do. And, and yet, uh, again, going back to having to hide all of that and not talk about that. And that was a part of why I had to hide it. Because it's like, oh, well, that's not how you sing or that's not right. how you're supposed to play music. Going to Pinker Zuckerman, you know, yeah, Koreans can't sing, right? Thai people can't sing in tune. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to bring that up because that's really, that really. And, and, the, and the internet took care of him. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> like the internet does. Yeah. I'm, I, I, but again, you know, like the colonization of the mind you have me you you use the word education you know i think about the fact that so many folks um entering music you know whether it's their middle school band or suzuki or whatever um especially for me i'll speak to myself you know for many years there just seemed to be a separation between what i was being taught 
uh, when it comes to good music, fine music, eternal music, and what I was listening to and engaging, you know, uh, every day on the radio. When I use that phrase classical training, I use that word training specifically because the the fingers, you know, aren't the only thing that are being trained. Mm-hmm. You know, to an extent, it's the it's the mind as well. Yes. Um, I wanna I wanna hop back to you know not anti-colonial ideas, but post-colonial ideas and post-colonial orchestras even. I wonder um, where uh, your work has brought you on that topic specifically. Are there uh, places in the world where Western classical music exists or existed and was eventually uh, pushed out or at least complemented by something that's uh, more closely aligned with that region's culture, that region's sensibilities? Yes, and I think there there are so many different types of examples as well. Like there are regions where, um, in in colonized regions where there were actual orchestras that existed, and eventually, once they they won independence, uh, then obviously those those sort got forced out, and then a new model Mm -hmm. was brought in. There are others where um, you had. like going back to the slave orchestra thing, you had a lot of musicians who were trained in Western classical music, or at least had some sort of training. It was never as nearly as formal in most cases as it is in, in say, uh, Europe and the U.S., uh, mm-hmm. but then would go on to form ensembles that were sort of a hybrid, a mixture of, of Western classical and uh, some native uh, indigenous uh, ensembles and musical types. Um, and then now you even have countries that are adopting Western uh classical orchestras and, and ensembles the um, wholeheartedly and, and basically you know, moving into the idea that uh, this is the way to show how we've become modernized or become, right. you know, a modern right. nation. So right. yeah, there's, there's so many different angles. Uh, and you know, the, the, um, the anti-colonial orchestras, I, I haven't heard anyone use the phrase, that phrase in particular, obviously there's a lot of anti-colonial music that exists where mm-hmm. it's, uh, they're using music specifically to, uh, fight back against, uh, musical imperialism or just against colonizing forces in general, whether that be the actual physical presence or the actual, uh, uh mental and emotional, right. uh, presence. Um, but I think it's going back to the, um, we we talked about this before we started recording, but the uh, Indonesian National Orchestra mm-hmm. and uh, and the idea that uh, it is sort of a pan Indonesian group, and the uh, the whole sp- the idea was just basically to get rid of Western instruments at all. Right. The thing is, of course, it's still an orchestra, and an orchestra is a very Western concept. The idea of having groups of instruments that play a, sim- a similar part, uh, which means you have to have some sort of standardization for uh, n- maybe not necessarily notation, but in some cases, yeah, notation, because everyone has to play the same part. It, uh, in most traditions, you have a lot of people doing in- idiosyncratic uh, ornaments and vibrato mm-hmm. or whatever, and so you can't play have a group of five people doing it idiosyncratic uh, 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 ornaments and and be able to play with a unified sound. So you know, there's there's that 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 entangling of a hybridity that we find in a lot of these these types of groups. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, link 
uh, what you're uh, what you just mentioned uh, uh, concerning the Indonesian orchestras. There's a part of it that I wanted to uh, read here. This is a quote um, from Frankie uh, Radin. Um, uh, he says, "However, the era of European symphony orchestra has come to an end. The development of 20th century orchestral music has turned into a dead end. The music became highly elitist and has alienated ordinary people, especially those who live outside of European high culture circles. Music has ceased to be a community." communication tool, cultural interaction, and spiritual endeavor. It is no longer part of human civilization. I wanted to uh, read that to ask you this. If there are folks here um, in positions of power who are able to take that stance when it comes to the way American orchestras approach the concept of classical music, I'm sure there will be many people that argue that it would do more harm than good to just rewrite the wheel, rebuild the boat in the way that it sounds like Indonesia did. What's your what's your response to that idea? Is it too late for us to be musically decolonized? Um, yeah, that's that's a hard question because, you know, like going back to what I said, the whole idea of an orchestra itself is a very Western concept. Right. So all of these anti-colonial orchestras, they're creating orchestras that are maybe all indigenous music or uh, all indigenous instruments and yet they're still using it's it's a it's an example of using the 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 master's tools to break down the master's house exactly yes yeah and that that's a tricky question and and ultimately yeah i i don't i don't know if it's entirely possible to completely get rid of the colonial past uh it's it's just for most regions and most people it's just been so so much embedded in the in in the history Mm -hmm. um that they're there like i said earlier you you untangle one thread you find that it's tangled right. up in tons of other threads um but i do think that at least giving people the choice to make their own decisions in those regards is the most important thing and i think that's one of the biggest uh challenges for especially i think especially for colonizers <laughs> I, I, I still love it. when i first heard that in black panther i just loved that yeah. the way it was used and it's perfect so perfect yeah. um yeah <laughs> but um because there's this there's obviously going back to classical music and the idea that you know it's it's uh perceived as the best and the highest achievement yeah. of, of mankind um you know i just remember that quote from baron Boyne saying baron Boyne saying uh when he was talking about um western orchestras and and bringing uh possibly starting orchestras in other countries he said no we shouldn't do that we should just bring you know our, like our our western orchestras to those right. countries bring it to places where music doesn't exist is basically what he said and it's mm-hmm. like yeah, you know, when you have that kind of culture to deal with, um, it's 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 a big hurdle. And and yeah, you know, Barenboy, Zuckerman, they're all of, of a similar generation. Um, but I've experienced those uh, those types of ideas all throughout my classical music <laughs> career, yeah, and yeah. I've heard it from people as uh, younger than I am. So it's, yeah. it's not it's it's not something that's uh, just a purely a generational thing. It's a, a part of the training, a part of the colonization. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also important to note, you know, when you talk about even communities, Berenboim, you know, basically talked about music not existing in in different parts of the world. I feel like we make that assumption when it comes to community um, engagement and outreach uh, sort of activities and initiatives. We pretend like these communities don't already have music or don't already engage music. I think, you know, even that concept is something that, you know, your assistant 
program director of community whatever at any of these orchestras if if they just spend a little bit of time thinking about that concept it might change the work oh yeah definitely definitely um uh, <laughs> yeah over the years i've gotten i've i've gotten much less sympathetic towards community outreach <laughs> because yeah it is it, it's, <laughs> it's it it's so much embedded with the the whole idea of um well, the whole idea of colonialism, the idea of you're bringing civilization to the unwashed, right? right. Um, they don't have culture, so we bring them culture, right? Uh, no, I, I, they, they've had it. It's just we want to bring them our culture to show them how superior it is. And right. this is the culture you should be aspiring to, not, not, not you know, your bluegrass stuff or your, or your, <laughs> your hip hop stuff. Or, 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 whatever, or your gamelan you know. stuff if you're you yeah, know, traveling exactly. around the world. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so you've. You've mentioned uh, slave orchestras a couple times, and I want to uh, spend a few minutes uh, digging into that. So um, the other piece that I'm going to um, cite of yours uh, for folks to take a look at, uh, classical music and its slave orchestras. One of the first things that's uh, noted in this article is how, you know, the world was just shook when they found out about uh, Handel's proximity to the uh, slave trade. I'm, uh, I learned from reading this article, you know, there, uh, there are other connections that can be made uh, to the music of the Mozarts, you know. Uh, <laughs> I wonder, uh, you know, with that being such shocking and difficult information for people to understand. What's been your uh, experience enlightening people to the idea that there are people who were enslaved that were forced to play uh, music that was was not theirs? What's been your journey with that research? That, yeah, that has been a very, very interesting uh, journey. Uh, a completely unintentional one. It's, it's just, it, you know, like going back to the idea that there are plenty of scholars that have written about slave orchestras in at least a particular region. No one has, to my knowledge yet, other, uh, no, I can't think of anyone that's actually written about it as a global phenomenon. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's the important piece that's missing because that will help us to understand the whole context of classical music and the era within which it emerged and evolved. Um, as far as, uh, the people, I mean, it's, it's, still the most wet read piece on my uh on my blog so <laughs> and um i've just discovered another six or seven universities that have been assigning it as readings in uh, mostly music schools so i think that brings a total up to 24 um so you know this includes like pretty high profile like juilliard there's a class in juilliard that uses, uh, uses oh wow reading um wow. so and mostly in the u.s and um in europe though they're they're I think there was one uh, just discovered a, another university in Australia that that also uses it. So it's it's the idea is starting to get out there, and I'm just hoping that someone you know other people will start picking up the strands and start you know doing their own research and yeah. writing pieces because it just needs to be more widely known. Um, so most of the people who have encountered it have have spoken spoken to me or interacted with me directly about it have uh, are just completely shocked they really don't know what to say it's it's yeah. it's such a <laughs> i obviously have no problems with saying things so i hence why sure. i wrote the piece of course why i tweet every and you know every little detail I've, well not every little detail if i did that i wouldn't be able to research anything i'd just be <laughs> tweeting everything um, right. but i tweet a lot of the details especially really interesting significant ones that uh, are different than other things like you know like slave music schools there are actually yeah. there were actually music schools that trained the slaves to be musicians for wherever they were 
either shipped off to or even just to stay right there uh, and, you know, play music for the congregation, local mm-hmm. congregation. So, um, you know, things like that. And I think I think. It's it's weird because I expected to I expected to get more pushback uh, or at least some pushback and I I wouldn't have been surprised if I would have gotten you know you know like some threats from <laughs> that I've heard <laughs> many of my other scholar friends and musician friends have whenever they brought up inconvenient <laughs> ideas and truths <laughs> only from colonizers I'm sure <laughs> yeah, <laughs> primarily yes. <laughs> um, so that was actually kind of surprising. I'm just wondering if it's just such a big subject and you know it's it's like you you, obviously you hear you can hear something that's that's shocking to you but you can easily put it into context you know and and say okay that kind of makes sense or you know oh that's that's all right i'm not but i think this is just so big because it's it's a global thing and it's it's existed for 300 years and and it's not taught to us at all. Right, <laughs> right. You know, it's not in our music history books. It's not uh, talked about outside of the context of, um, well, I mean, it's not talked about in, in the public. So, you know, it's, 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 I think it's just so big that most people don't really know what to say about it. It's, it's like, yeah. you're, it's just kind of that I'm speechless moment. You know, it's like, literally, I, I sometimes I feel that way when I'm reading about this. And it was like, I, I had to stop and say, Oh my gosh, that, that's, a, that's another piece of this puzzle. I'm still, I still sometimes come up to stuff and think, oh, that's just, I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, well, you know, con- I think context is very important, and I enjoy putting things into um, the most contemporary context that I can. So, mm-hmm. with the the world history of the uh, perceived unlearned or less learned, you know, being uh, allegedly elevated into this classical uh, musical uh, sort of uh, tradition, you know, the, the history of that. I can't help but to think about, again, DEI initiatives, orchestra fellowships, other school music programs that, you know, I'll speak plainly, that take kids out of the hood, at least the way they see that, and, you know, raise them up in the same way that, you know, so many years ago, maybe not so many years ago, that was happening to enslaved people. I wonder, you know, what is the the infrastructure maintaining that today? Uh, back when, you know, when we're talking about Handel and Leopold Mozart and all those folks, you know, it's the slave trade that, you know, sort of uh, the, the money from it that fueled so much of these uh, these things and so many of these practices all the way down to musical training. What's your perspective on the uh, the energy, the the forces that keep something that is, from my perspective, something pretty similar happening today. Who's bolstering this? Uh, how can I say Western classical music industrial complex? It's not <laughs> it's not a slave trade these days, but there must be some other connection there, considering the other similarities. Yeah, no, that's that's actually a very good question, and I, I you know, going back to your earlier comment about. Um, <laughs> raising the kids out of the the hood or, or getting them from out of poor areas and, and at risk training. or whatever dog whistles, yeah. you know, they want to yeah, use. It's, uh, I hadn't really thought about that, con- uh, that in the context of modern practice of doing that. And now, now that now you brought up, it's like, now oh, you have to write another blog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, 
going back to the residential schools, that was literally what they did with um, some of the uh, like the Carlisle school I've, I've written about a little a few times. And there have been a couple of pieces written about how they actually use classical music specifically to train to, you know, train them to be more Western, uh, yeah. to be more or sorry, more American. And uh, so they literally had to learn how to play Western instruments. They had lessons. The, they, probably, they probably had some sort of theory classes or, or uh, oral training. Um, but then they did their concerts. And one of there are actually some photos of this. The, one of the productions was of uh, an opera called, um, oh my gosh, the, the, is it the Rock of Plymouth? Uh, I can't remember now the name of the opera for some reason, um, but it was basically uh, Plymouth about Plymouth Rock. It was about uh, the, the, about the Pilgrims and the Indians, and the you know the, all these indigenous children had to play both the white colonizers and the Indians and mm -hmm. stereotypical Indians at that. You know, right, it's not even right. it, it was not like a specific tribe. It was just like this general, you know. Um, race-faced <laughs> right, version exactly of, yeah um and there there are actual photos of some of those uh at least like after the productions they would take a group photo of all the kids mm -hmm. and you can see them all dressed up as as you know early early wow uh, yeah yeah it's, uh, <laughs> but you know how how different is that than what music education is now or even Back then, you know, uh, that has now has become a part of the history of how music education has proceeded until now. Um, you know, it's it's the idea that we are, you know, training kids like me to say, your mom is not singing in tune, right? Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, or that so rap music that you were listening to in the car on your way to school is not as important or not as good as this etude that you should have practiced last night or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's it's like, it's like like you said earlier. It's uh, we with the outreach, it's it's so much about saying this is the culture that isn't this culture needs to take over that culture or push that culture aside. And that's kind of what it, what is doing. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's sort of a negative way of looking at it. And obviously, and, and obviously there, there's some context where I imagine it's, it's been very helpful for kids. Sure. Um, but, you know, helpful for what, I guess is the question. Um, yeah. But as far as, you know, the, the education, I mean, going back to the early 20th century is is really when music education, at least in the U.S., uh, really took off as far as being in schools. Um, because that was the period when we started having a, uh, it was the third wave of immigration. So we had tons of new immigrants coming from a lot of different places in the world. Um, it was just after um, indigenous peoples were, you know, not long after they were completely forced off of most of their land and then taken to residential schools. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's post-reconstruction where we have all of a sudden a new population. Well, you know, not new, but now it's considered a population because back then it was property, right, um, of, right. of people that are uh, now need to be trained as well. It's like so there was this sort of need to create uh, an American uh school system you know a training system <laughs> yeah I, I keep oscillating between school school and training because really yeah. it is training isn't it <laughs> it, um, it makes you think about that word differently you know training yes, classical training <laughs> it does um 
but that that was also the end of the era of the concert band going back to our earlier conversation because yeah. the concert band was incredibly popular until the early 20th century it was like the predominant ensemble in the u.s which is another reason why i think it's it's sad that we don't really talk about cla- uh concert bands as being well you know Back then, it was more marching and military bands, but there were some. There were a lot of concert bands. Practically every town had one, um, but that was waning in popularity. But the instrument makers that were supplying those groups still mm-hmm. needed to supply instruments to something, so they actually became a big part in um, uh, legislating and lobbying for school education programs because then they could sell their instruments to schools mm-hmm. and. <laughs> So, you know, there's a different strand here of the economic side of an instrument manufacturing uh, industry that needed to keep selling their products. And so they needed to have new customers. And so why why not just create our own customers and say, hey, we need we need school instrumental programs so we can sell our instruments. Of course, they didn't say so we can sell our instruments. But um, that was a big part of it. That was a big part of uh, the push in the earlier 20th century. I mean, that's Uh, the definition of an industrial complex. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. You know, know, this is obviously a bigger conversation that we can squeeze (laughs) uh, into this time. I'll I'll, I'll link uh, the two works that uh, we referenced, the two pieces that we referenced, as well as your Twitter. But, you know, just to wrap up... um, I wanted to affirm that, you know, you've mentioned it, I'll I'll, uh, repeat what you were saying, that there's so much scholarship and there are so many people who have been uh, involved in this type of work. You, uh, in one of the pieces that I'll link, um, you cite Dr. Garrett Schumann, who's uh, been on Triloquy and continues in the work. I understand that uh, you were recently acquainted with uh, Christine Gangelhoff, who's uh, usually down in the Bahamas. You know, so there's so many folks, you know, even today who are pushing forward and and, and trying to get more people to understand these concepts and understand them uh, toward change. We've seen that the institutions are just not going to, you know, steer the, to, to, to chip, to drive the car in a different direction, at least not uh, as quickly as we would like. So <laughs> to that, when it comes to all of these folks doing this work in, in different ways, uh, imagining a post-colonial American musical ecosystem what does that next step look like for the folks you know doing the work and trying to inspire others i mean are we lacking infrastructure does there need to be um a central school built for this sort of thought do we need to go and burn down all of the concert halls before someone pays attention what what, what what's your vision of a post colonial ecosystem when it comes to specifically the scholarship and the conversations surrounding this concept yeah um I think the the first step for that is actually making sure that uh, people who do start to realize that the conversation needs to uh, to change, that they don't stumble over and make the same mistakes some of us have made as we were, you know, learning these things, um, because it's it's like any it's like any new convert to any <laughs> new ideology or religion. You get mm-hmm. your zealots that just are all for it and they jump in, irregardless or I just use it regardless. My gosh, but I guess that's now a word, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> officially. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, but uh, regardless of how that may actually harm uh, the populations you're supposed to help, as well as uh, you know, just the the overall system. Um, so I, I think it's just 
I think we, we're still navigating. A lot of us are still navigating that. Some of us, of course, have, have navigated for years and decades. But um, as, as far as the overall conversation, especially in the public, that's that's being navigated uh, and and really needs to be there. I don't want to say rules and regulations for how to approach, but, you know, the, the best practices maybe is the, the word to use, because obviously there are better ways of approaching this than others. And until we get enough people that know that better way, it's it's going to be a lot of people stumbling into yeah. each other or stumbling into past scholarship without without recognizing it or acknowledging it. And but I think. You know, th that's part of the problem is also bringing that past scholarship and finding, I don't want to say aggregate, it's like, but that's really what we need. We, you know, it's like, that's basically what I did with the slave orchestras. It's not like this didn't exist in individual countries. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just no one's really talked about it within the context of a global, as a global phenomenon. And basically, I just aggregated all that and said, oh, this is not just one country or two. It's just like every colonized country in the world. So I... I think that's a big part of it as well is that we have all this information. It's just not uh, the gatekeeping mechanism is just not very, <laughs> it's not there. And I don't know if we, we really want it to be there because obviously then who decides that? And that's the same issue that we have to de deal with in, in any other um, field is who gets to gatekeep and who gets them <laughs> to monitor it and who gets to yeah. uh, censor or whatever. Um, so, I mean, the, it's all interconnected. It's, it's uh, everything, you know, you, you, you pull one strand and the, another one gets tangled up, it gets tangled up somewhere else. So, um, but I would, I would like to have more agency for members of, uh, minoritized, minoritized, uh, marginalized communities to have a voice. And I think that's a big part of it because obviously they're the ones that are affected the most by it. Um, you know, I was affected by my classical music training unintentionally um, when I talk about uh, Thai music and or yeah. can't talk about Thai music for that for that matter. Um, so I think we need to learn how to give spaces to those that are in that position uh, and let them be a part of the conversation and let them drive it. And at the same time, not not expect them to <laughs> give um give too much emotional labor right <laughs> to expect them to do do it uncompensated um and that's that's another big part of the issue is that the funding structures it's it's geared it's weighted towards the uh, the the mainstream That's a Thai instrument called the Ranat Ek, like a, a wooden percussion instrument. I'll have the uh, title to that linked. I'm not. I'm not even gonna. <laughs> mm, not gonna do, give it a shot. Um, but I, I think you know. I really appreciate John coming on, and uh, you know, for one, even outside of music, just highlighting. Thai culture, Thai music, Thai land as a place on the map. It's a it's an aesthetic that 
obviously we don't learn much about over here in music school and um, even even beyond. I think they're, uh, you know, having a specific connection, you know, how John has that familial connection, how, you know, that has led him to that and how he can lead so many other folks to what's going on over there. My first boyfriend was Ty. Mm. He broke he broke my heart when he moved away oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> on the wrestling team. <laughs> I'll just I'll just leave it at that. Shout out to Dell. Uh, <laughs> so a huge uh, thank you to John. One thing before we got into the triloquy, Scott, uh, I wonder if you had a response to the idea that being in the mainstream is required for arts funding, at least on on a large scale. When when John was talking about the ways in which we have to shift the boat, the things that have to change for a post-colonial American classical music ecosystem, the funding structures have to change. And the general opinion is that the big dollars go to people and go to institutions who are still coloring within the lines. Maybe they're using different colors, but they're still coloring within the lines. So you're asking me if the funding needs to go to Do you think if the, the funding structures if the funding structures change you think do you think that will be the uh the levies opening up and the bigger and you know the will will faster change come with that is that the big thing Boy that from would your be perspective? no that would be my hope that yeah. that would work because as we sit and talk about it you and I and and other friends of the podcast it seems natural seems natural no you know what i'm saying so like when we lay things out the logic of this makes sense yeah so i would have to say it would be my hope that that would be the way it would work Mm -hmm. let's let's put it into practice somebody give money to a smaller organization and see what they do with it i'm thinking about um even state funding like corporation uh for public broadcasting for example what if you know all of the money that was going into, uh, you know, the whatever bigger institutions in in that field, you know, public television, public radio, if they pump that money into, you know, a, a city's smallest uh, community radio or whatever, you know, they just restructure to build them up, you know, mm-hmm. and then these are uh, radio stations that, you know, have the freedom, have more freedom anyway to do what they want and, and to think in, uh, in post-colonial ways. I think... That could be huge. It wouldn't be the end of the work. You know, I think that would be a great way to start the work in a big way. You know, I see that. Yeah. Anyway, well, uh, let's go ahead and get into this triloquy. The trill this week is going to be provided by Randall Gooseby. This is uh, Randall Gooseby and Xavier Dubois Foley uh, playing a tune called Shelter Island. This is from Randall Gooseby's uh, new album called Roots. Really quick, really quick there, but some quick double-stopped trills. Does that mean that the triloquy is going to be quick? <laughs> no, that means the triloquy is going to be double-stopped. Hey. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to transition with music by Randall Gooseby because uh, one of y'all's journalists pissed me off today. Uh, I'm reading here from LudwigVon.com. Okay, so this is a Toronto thing. This is like a, a, a Toronto publication. It's not just this man's blog. Norman Lebrecht, a mixed start for Decca's new violin poster boy, Randall Gooseby. Okay, so often with these, we can't even get past the headline. We can't even get into the meat of the thing mm-hmm. because of these fucked up headlines. How about you talk a little bit about the conversation of poster boy, the things, the thing that instantly came to your mind when you read this headline? Yeah, my uh, my alarms immediately went off with that uh, headline, not just because of the use of the word boy, 
but because I have never heard anybody be called the poster whatever for whatever, Mm -hmm. child, boy, girl, whatever it was, if it wasn't something derogatory or trying to to suppress, diminish, you know, whatever their presence was, or or make fun somehow. Oh, you're the poster boy for... Leather shoes, you know. Right. You know, it was some. Right. It's some, always shade. Right. It's always, it's always something shade. to be shade. So when you start off that way, I'm I'm going to have a hard time taking the rest of the article seriously. Basically, so go but, ahead, go but ahead. here, let me tell you what I did though, just to make sure that I wasn't out of line. I went over and I googled "poster child problematic," mm-hmm. and I come up with this uh, news story that's published in the the Phoenix about a congressional candidate who who used national poster boy in referring to his black uh, opponent. When do you think this article was published? I know that I would hope earlier. I would hope earlier than this week or this year, or even the year before. August 2010. Okay, so for over 10 years, there has been conversation on why that is inappropriate. Uh, Norma Lebrecht even doubled down. The second sentence of the article is Randall Gooseby, 25, is Decca's new poster boy violinist. So he's acknowledging that this is a grown-ass man. And he's even throwing shade at Decca here. I'm going to read, you know, so beyond the the headline, I'm going to read a little bit of what pissed me off, okay? Uh, Norman Lebrecht is being a hater. He says, the problem here is programming, specifically taste and selection. William Grant still is always worth hearing, and Florence Price sometimes. So is he just going to shit on everybody? Mm -hmm. Is he just going to go down the line talking about sometimes Florence Price? Yasha Hyvis' greatest hits from Porgy and Best do little to vary the mood, and Dvorak's opus 100 American Sonatina is spruced up country country music and all but name this listener feels shortchanged he goes on to um shit on uh the producer um he he said the, that yeah. um challenging propensity uh than the desperately untesting Zhu Huang so you know disrespecting him Scott this is the thing and this is why I'm bringing this up uh somebody over at Ludwig von Toronto read this proofed this quality checked it whatever and put it up here. So the institutions, these big organizations, bigger organizations anyway, will platform this nonsense. And what's on the other side of that? I feel like there has to be institutional damning of this sort of news, of these sorts of things, especially considering, you know, uh, Randall just being named of Sphinx Medal of Excellence. We need to have his back. Mm-hmm. And if it's nobody but me and other folks on the ground, so be it. So listen, I know y'all won't get on y'all's radio stations, do your uh, air checks or uh, breaks or anything and say it, but I will. Norman Lebrecht, fuck you. Fuck your opinion. I hope you choke on a d- I get so pissed when I think about the fact That folks like Randall Gooseby out here living his best life has to have not only individuals standing in the way and doing all this nonsense. (sighs) I get emotional about it. This is age old. For how many centuries have white men been saying, boy, to the best of us, to those of us who work tirelessly, okay? I know the big box people, you know, 
will say that certain reactions are inappropriate or whatever, but if no one else is going to say it to Norman Lebrecht, I will. That's Triloquy number one. Do you have anything else to add there? <clears throat> no? Um, I still have to get my hair back down from getting blowed back on... Uh... <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm not telling I, you to come on here and cuss out Norman Lebrecht, but Scott, my point I is was shocked. The, there, there need to be opposing forces. I did not know that that was what you were going to say. I was just shocked for a minute. Triloquy number two. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I put a, a, a social media out. Uh, a social media post out last week that got a, a, a bit of attention. So I, I want to just speak on that uh, quickly here. So long story short, I've been talking about uh, some of the radio job interviews I've been taking. And you know how I love to ask questions. I'll flip an interview. You know, that ain't no problem. So one of the main questions I ask is what specifically qualifies a piece of music for your radio station. So let's say, Scott, you're interviewing for something, you're involved, and that question is asked to you. Do you have uh, any idea how you would approach that question? I understand. I'm not I'm not saying that it's an easy question or a question that somebody should just be able to spit something out. But I think that's a fair question, especially for someone considering, you know, partnering with a radio station in this way. Do you have any ideas about the qualifications? What not what disqualifies, what qualifies a piece of music for airplay on classical radio? I don't, and I think that you would catch a large number of the people on the interview panel flat-footed with that question. And the point I'm making with that question is we always talk about we have an understanding of what is not allowed, okay? But we don't often talk about the why. So I think as we move forward, talking about decolonizing the phrase classical music, that's a question we have to consider. When we're programming for concerts and symphony halls, when we're staging operas, what qualifies this these works? And, you know, list everything you want to, you know, symphonic this and da-da-da and blah-blah-blah. I can point you to something that the industry is not playing or the in industry is not platforming. All of the stuff we've talked about even today with black violin. What does black violin have that a Brahms symphony does not have? Especially when you pair them with an orchestra and do that sort of thing and then taking that recording and then platforming it on classical radio. You know, those are things that need to happen. We aren't there yet. You know, but I think it's something that more, more and more people need to think about. As I move forward, you know, in my work, I'm continuing to see, you know, how the tiny steps are really more problematic than not. Another one of the things that I pointed out in my post on my little rant was that music by BIPOC artists and women have been forced into escort status. They're only there to accompany the European musical standards that classically trained musicians have been forced into. You said it yourself, Scott. I think during season two who is going to be the orchestra to program the black season i understand the the positive movement that is having a black piece of music on every program but it seems like we can only get the black piece of music if beethoven is there or if rachmaninoff is there do you get what i'm saying when we talk about i'm talking specifically you know more about orchestral programming right now when you go to the symphony yes we might get the florence price piano concerto but we have to get the gershwin something or we have to you know i 
I, th- I, th- I think we need to even move beyond that and start challenging the escort status that we're putting this black music into. And then, you know, furthermore, as I continue down this thought path and think about where the industry is and where I am, I'm resolved to believe you know, that folks like me, me and folks like me, again, I always, you know, shout out everyone else doing this work, that there isn't really room for us or that we really aren't allowed into those spaces. Just like the music, we have the knowledge, we have the the uh, the practiced experience. We just have a perspective that disqualifies us. We have what qualifies us. It's the beliefs, it's what you add on that gets knocked out. I see this, I see that in the music when we talk about drums, I'm uh, bar talk, you know, and I see that uh, in the way that so many of us are out here being treated. I mean, the composers, you know, let, let's uh, decenter radio, the composers who are writing music that might incorporate something more contemporary, maybe a hip hop beat, maybe a, an electric guitar or something. Why isn't their music being platformed in the same way that this 200, 300 year old music is? It should be. These are the, ra- these are the radical directions we have to move into to actually create change. I see this as a possible uh, uh, reality for the classical music ecosystem. I picture a, a Saturday night where, you know, Folks want to go hear uh, Tank and the Bangers with the Louisiana Symphony, or they want to go hear Paviel with the Minnesota Orchestra, or they, you know, just pick, pick your local um, artist and, and the local orchestra, just fill in the blank. I think we can do that. We just have to get over the fear that so many of these program and music directors have. And I feel like we can begin to have the conversation of that fear. When more people ask themselves that question, what specifically qualifies a piece of music for your radio station, for your um, spring concert, for your holiday pops, for your um, fall opera? You know, what? think about what qualifies. Let's not think about what disqualifies. Let's put down on a sheet of paper everything we need a piece of music to have. And if something outside of the box has all of those things, it deserves a space in that program or in that in that whatever, you know, that's what I got. That's what I got there. Um, again, everybody who is, uh, you know, outside the box, coloring outside the lines, hold fast. We can do it. I know we can do it. I, I read a lot of emails every week about folks, you know, doing things on a, you know, on a micro level, you know, talking to these two elementary schools. And, and this, I'm not trying to out nobody right now. I'm trying to talk, you know, um, you know, a, a little abstractly. But, you know, folks in the elementary school systems trying to make change, folks, you know, college professors, you know, slipping certain things in to, you know, open folks' mind, private music teachers that are allowing beatboxing flute and that sort of thing. And they in their curriculums. You know, it's, it, I, I know being just, you know, outside of that mainstream can be really hard, but we have to continue. And my charge to people in the mainstream is to see us and to make sure that you're doing what you can. Otherwise, you're, you know, a, as much a part of the problem as, as anyone else. Um, anyway, a final fuck you to uh, Norman Lebrecht. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. 